our brains are programmed for tribal belonging. We relied on human reciprocity for survival. And so that's why public speaking is always one of people's top fear because public humiliation equates to death. You can use audience building, entrepreneurship, the internet as a mirror to sort of overcome these deeper existential fears that we have. You kind of hijack these older parts of your brain and get them to start playing for you, the home team, instead of fighting them, which so many people do when they're on the, on the back end of, a, of an entrepreneurial journey. So let's start with acting. Like what interested you in acting? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really the same thing that got me into psychology and the world of therapy as well. Uh, it was really my love for mythology and storytelling. So when I was 20 years old, I, I pulled myself out of college. I was sort of stuck in some bad behaviors, living a, a lifestyle that wasn't in alignment with what I wanted for my future. So I made the hard decision to pull myself out of college and I moved down to Hawaii attended a wilderness therapy program down there for, for youth. I was 20 at the time. And while I was there in their library, I started reading Carl Jung and I started reading Joseph Campbell. And it just like opened up this whole new domain of intellectual curiosity for me. And, and so that was really kind of, kind of my gateway into, into storytelling. Very cool. Yeah. I feel that, um, I act every day. I don't know to what extent you do, uh, to what extent we all do, but what I thought was my authentic self is actually kind of what I thought my authentic self should be. So there's like layers of authenticity there, conscious and unconscious. And so I'm kind of looking at like, who am I and what do I want? Uh, does any of that kind of resonate with your introduction into acting? It does for sure. And it reminds me of, of a Marlon Brando quote. Um, I'm going to totally butcher it. In fact, I'm not even going to try it. But it's, he's basically saying the same thing, that we are all actors, right? That life is a stage. We're all actors. And, and it also brings to mind um, a, a Jungian sort of idea, one of his core cornerstones of his philosophy, this idea of persona, which persona, I believe, is the Greek word for mask, which is basically the presentation that we have in the various you know aspects of our lives we have our persona how we seek to be perceived how we it's sort of a way to kind of control people's perception of us and it's also really connected to the union concept of the shadow as well which is really popular in, in therapy spaces as well so i could talk about that a little bit more but i i wholeheartedly agree with that i see a paradox with us being both individuals and a group organism and what you uh, what you said really resonated with me that being able to control how we're perceived. But I found what's ironic in my case is that I was unaware of how others were perceiving me. It's almost like you look different in the mirror versus a photograph. And so you think you're being perceived in one way where you might be being perceived in a different way. So it's kind of, uh, you know, that that introspection maybe helps with uh, finding your, your authenticity and being able to more accurately take in the data from nature as well, because you might be tuning out some cues that might be helpful to you. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's beautiful. I totally agree. And it, and it reminds me of, of a bias that exists in the brain as well, the negativity bias, which is an evolutionary trait you know, designed for survival. Basically, our brains are designed to filter and, and, and perceive the negative way more than the positive. And so this also accounts for past memories and experiences, things that caused us pain in an attempt to not find ourselves in that same situation to avoid pain. And then how we perceive the future as well, because the brain in so many ways is just a, a problem solving machine. And so we identify problems that then we can solve so that we then we can grow and, and evolve through them. So absolutely, that's that's a key piece that 
that I find comes up with a lot of the folks that I work with is this, this negativity bias. And I think it also breeds into some, some cultural perfectionism as well that can make it really difficult for folks to um, find self-acceptance and, and accurately view themselves without a doubt. You spoke about Jung and one thing about the shadow, one thing I found surprising for myself was things that annoyed me uh, in other people were had a lot to do with me. Have you come across that? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's this idea that our relationships, they hold mirrors for various aspects of us, right? And then there's this idea in psychology as well with projection. And so projection is basically um, the recognition. It's basically like unconscious material that isn't integrated in ourselves that then gets externalized on an outside figure projected onto. But I think the relational piece, you know, people when people ask me, you know, like, where do I start? Where do I need to look for my next stage of human development? I always say, look at your closest relationships because we work out our emotional patterns, our unconscious energy through the people that are closest to us. So in those, the, 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 the relating with these people, like there, there's little code in there. There's little password in there that is going to offer you great insight on what the next stage of your, your personal development is, no doubt. Are you familiar with the Japanese uh, play kind of um, acting called No, N-O-H? No, I'd love to learn though. You, um, you've heard of Kabuki probably? Kabuki, no. I, the only Japanese term that, okay. that I've heard a lot is Akaige, I think, which is kind of like purpose. Okay, okay. I was a tour guide in Japan, so here I am projecting my experience onto you. But I'll just tell you a little bit about the no, which I was surprised about. Uh, kabuki is a little bit more flamboyant, and sometimes it gets, the I could think, more attention. But the no is a little bit more understated. However, the actors, they wear these like, wooden masks. And there's a lot of like artwork that goes into creating the mask, uh, a lot of like artistry or craftsmanship. And then they look at the mask, they hold the mask in front of them, and they touch it to their face. And they basically allow themselves to become possessed by the character they're about to play and literally don the mask. So it's kind of like a hardcore version of like method acting, I guess. And I just thought that was really surprising uh, talking about the, the, the Jungian kind of shadow and projection and uh, playing a character. I've never acted for like work. I've just acted for life, I guess. But for you, like, was that freeing in a way, like being told to play a character? And did you learn things about yourself through uh, playing another character? Yeah, well, to, to answer your first question, I actually kind of go against the grain a lot of from a lot of what I would hear from other actors in that it's 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 really freeing to be a a different person or kind of there's this cliche around actors that they're trying to escape some aspect of themselves by putting on a new mask of somebody different. Um, I sort of lean a little bit the other way that actually the more of myself that I can bring to the character. I mean, I know it's definitely curated in physicality and in voice and a bunch of different aspects, but I try and be as much of my version of me really, or my version of myself in that character um, to really bring sort of that rawness into it. I never felt like I, I, when I do my best acting work, it's always when my true self is coming through in the window dressing of this character. I never really feel like 
I'm somebody else. When I look at some moments that I've had on stage and moments on camera that have been like truly transcendent for me, like almost like 4D transcendence, it's always when there's been some kernel of truth in who I am and in my soul that finds an outlet that I wasn't sort of previously connected to. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's kind of the best I got in this moment. <laughs> it does a lot, actually. Thank you. It reminds me of what I've heard about comedy and lying, essentially both, in that they're both more successful uh, if they have a kernel of truth to them. So a good joke needs some truth and a good lie needs some truth as well. Uh, and so maybe acting as well, you need that that root, that foundation of authenticity. And perhaps the more, this kind of goes to something we mentioned, or I mentioned to you before we started recording about entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial mindset and a repackaging of experiences. So it's almost, I, I, if I could like get out of my skis a little bit here, maybe it's like taking that authentic self and then kind of thinking, what if I spun it this way? Or what if I like, like had this kind of uh, framework? Does that, does that resonate at all? Yeah, it does. It does. Well, so I look at the entrepreneurial journey as a mirror for personal development and really like soul growth and like tending the soul in a lot of ways, because as you engage in this process, you're going to be exposed to yourself that you did not know or parts of yourself that you didn't know existed. Previous fears, fear of being seen, insecurity, especially if we're talking about audience building. So a big part of what I do is like, really face forward building an audience. You know, I, I really kind of started my audience journey in November and and I've got close to maybe 12,000 followers across platforms at this point. And it's really been so much of my unique story and how I've turned my wound into my now gift that has been a part of that. But I really see it as, as a mirror in a lot of ways. And I also see it as a uh, modern hunter, hunter gathering as well. <laughs> I think that, you know, so if, if we look at the brain's development, it, it really, there's, there's nuance here, but at base understanding, there's three stages to it. So we have our lizard brain, which is where sort of like the limbic system sits, which is responsible for aggression, um, survival. From that, we have the mammalian brain responsible for social belonging, memory, and then the prefrontal cortex, which is what we our sense of identity, our rational thinking, et cetera. So these older parts of the brain, because they came first and are maybe more connected to our unconscious or more sort of archetypal patterns. Again, if we talk about young, the archetypes are really there as a result of evolution, et cetera. They have a much bigger factor in our decision-making than we, than we really realize. And so when you go from being a consumer to online content, you're, dopamine is has obviously been hijacked by the algorithm and these big corporations that are vying for your attention to suddenly becoming an entrepreneur. You're now a, a hunter and a trap setter. And I don't mean that in a completely negative way and that you're trying to pull the wool over people's eyes or whatever, but you leverage these older parts of our brain. For example, like our brains are programmed for tribal belonging. We relied on human reciprocity for survival. And so that's why public speaking is always one of people's top fear because public humiliation equates to death. So you can use audience building, entrepreneurship, the internet as a mirror to sort of overcome these deeper existential fears that we have or these deeper um, uh, 
survival evolutionary instincts that we have for accumulation of resources, et cetera, you kind of allow those parts of your brain to start playing for you. And no longer, you know, for myself, am I consuming content from the point of a consumer? I'm consuming it from an entrepreneur, from a creator. What lands? What hits? Why did this make me click? Why am I now on this person's website? What emotion was stirred in me? What were the levers that were pulled within me? What trap did they set? And then flipping the script and realizing that you can kind of take that same formula for your own entrepreneurial journey. And, and next thing you know, right, you're being more intimate and vulnerable, face forward and building your audience, sharing your story. You're overcoming these insecurities, fear of public humiliation, XYZ. You're acquiring your own resources through the tools that we have available to us, the internet, et cetera. So, and you're also leveraging your own dopamine as well, because not only is dopamine the motivation chemical, chemical neuro, neurotransmitter, but it is also the anticipatory neuro, neurotransmitter as well. So you begin to anticipate rewards in a different way through growth in the entrepreneurial sense. So you kind of hijack these older parts of your brain and get them to start playing for you, the home team, instead of fighting them, which so many people do when they're on the on the back end of, a, of an entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, no, a lot to digest there. Thanks. Uh, I was just thinking, in my sense, I have been nervous, I guess, to put it lightly about public speaking or standing on stage, especially, and have some social anxiety in large crowds, like a little bit goes a long way. And I started to recognize, at least in my understanding, that perhaps a lot of that had to do with me not trusting myself and putting a lot of power in other people's rating of me. Uh, whereas if you can find a healthy balance between your own rating of yourself, like you said, using your dopamine for, for yourself instead of letting it be used to, to play you like an instrument, maybe, uh, then maybe you, you're not so, you don't need as much rest and recuperation from uh, standing on stage to an audience in front of an audience of a thousand or being at a large party or something like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, it brings something to mind for me, how I was able to offer myself a reframe that counteracted social anxiety, some of that nervousness, and even more specifically people pleasing because I feel like this people pleasing, I mean, it's at the root of, of so many issues that, that I find clients are struggling with when I'm working with them. And ultimately I realized that my mechanism of people pleasing was inherently selfish because what it was, it was an attempt to control people's perception of me. Right. And so innately within that, it felt very, it is, it's, it's a very selfish thing in a lot of ways in this aspect of this sort of self, this self-centered self-sabotage. And so one thing that I, that I really encourage folks to do in, in social situations when they're struggling with social anxiety, it, it doesn't apply too much as much to public speaking, but more in social situations. Um, a mentor told me that, you know, if I'm at a party or if I'm at an event and I find myself feeling uncomfortable and, and feel that sort of like people pleasing or the inauthenticity come up, I immediately look for ways to get out of myself. And the best way to do that is to be of service. So going up to the host at the party and being like, hey, can I help you set the table? Can I do these dishes for you? 
maybe finding somebody else that feels maybe you perceive they look a little bit uncomfortable and walking up to them and being like, man, I feel so awkward. I'm kind of like crawling out of my skin here, you know, like giving the permission, being of service, just creating opportunity to get out of my own self or uh, self-centered thinking. And next thing I know, I'm not thinking about myself and the freedom in my body, freedom in my affect, the freedom, of my ability to communicate is suddenly turned on because I'm not thinking about myself. Yeah. It's interesting. So I arrived at a similar uh, conclusion, if you will, or, or idea with the public speaking angle, where once I started thinking about what value am I providing to the audience, like how can I give them some useful information? I was just a vector for that. I was just a, you know, a, an instrument rather than worrying about like, please give me a good review at the end of this. Uh, but regarding the, the people pleasing, um, you know, I, I realized somewhat recently that that was a huge part of how I interacted with people. And I, at least consciously, I think I thought that I was following the golden rule of treating people the way that I would want to be treated. And I think actually two things are kind of true at once. That is to a sense, I, I, like I, I would like you know, a certain amount of politeness and respect, but there is a, an unconscious amount of manipulation, like you said. It's almost like giving someone a gift and then it's like, well, what did you get me? Or maybe they feel like they're supposed to get you. So I didn't ask for a gift. Like, I don't want to owe you something. So I don't know, there's a little bit of uh, imbalance there and it can also have a, a knock-on effect. So yeah, it's best to, I think, speak your mind. And also going back to us being somewhat of a group organism, it's better for the genome if we're all kind of sharing our data points. Cause like if one of our nodes is kind of turned off, we're not getting data from that node. And maybe we just like wind up in a, a dead end somewhere. So uh, I, I think like healthy discourse is probably the better way to go. That's a beautiful way to look at it for sure. You mentioned that a couple of times, this, the, the reality that we're all a part of this shared organism. I'm just curious to sort of how you think about that or how you came to that conclusion or what that means to you, if that has a spiritual angle to it, more biological or, or I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we could, we could uh, kind of uh, think about it for like uh, come at it from different angles. I don't have like a definitive answer of, of how I think about it. I'm kind of exploring with the concept I, I suppose a little bit about me. I mentioned I was a tour guide in Japan for a while, spent most of my adult life in East Asia. And uh, I stick out like a sore thumb there um, externally, but like internally, you kind of start to, to pick up certain things, like some things you, you like or some things you just, it's easier to go with the flow. And what was interesting was in the pandemic coming to Canada where I'm, where I'm now, and people assume that I'm a local but uh, inside, you know, I still connected very much with the East Asian uh, culture, particularly Japanese. And so it's really bizarre in a sense to, to then have everything flipped. And uh, there's like this, this interesting kind of, I don't know, concept of identity, I suppose. I, I don't know if that accurately like encapsulates kind of everything involved there. But in Japan, that was my first experience of kind of thinking of a human being as somewhat of a computer, like programmable. Uh, so in order to learn a language, it's not just a matter of learning like a combination or learning vocabulary. It's a matter of kind of living in the place and, and um, uh, understanding a little bit of the history of the culture and uh, the things unsaid. And once you uh, have another knowledge, uh, sorry, another language already, it can actually impede the acquisition of your new language in some ways, because you have this sunk cost fallacy where you want to get as much out of what you already believe, what you already know. And sometimes it's better to like let that go. 
I don't have a good answer of knowing when that would be, but I found in myself that I had to kind of create this app uh, that told people it's kind of like a Japanese David or something where I'm like bowing and taking things from two hands and slipping my noodles and doing stuff that they do in Japan. And some of it's like hard to turn off. And some of it was, was hard to turn on to begin with. Like I, I wanted to keep like American David, uh, you know, alive and well. And so you have these like different, I guess for lack of a better word, identities or apps. I, I see these paradoxes everywhere. Uh, kind of like you find what you look for, I guess. But with uh, Albert Einstein's general rule of relativity, it's very elegant. With Neil Bohr's quantum mechanics, it's very messy and chaotic. And Albert Einstein racked his head trying to think about how to reconcile these two things. And I guess they're searching for the grand unifying theory. And as far as I understand, they haven't been able to do it yet, but we've been able to do it in our minds, in nature, with the corpus callosum that co connects the right hemisphere with the left hemisphere. And with AI making the ways these days, I, I saw this talk where they mentioned the, the current computational model, uh, you have to choose Accuracy, as in Google search, or creativity, as in ChatGPT, but you, you can't do both. And I, I saw this kind of paradox, and yet we as humans are kind of evolved for it, in a sense, with our minds and with being able to, like, leave North America and, like, go to Asia and kind of live a more or less comfortable life there, discomfort in new ways, but comfort in new ways as well, and then uh, flip the script and come back to, like, more or less your home continent and then uh, have vice versa. And actually, um, there's another interesting thing I noticed that I speak to a couple of expats about, and that is the, the concept that you leave pieces of you like wherever you've been. And so the more you live in a few places, in a sense, the less whole you are in any one place. And you have different perspectives, but it comes at the cost of like, you know, having pieces of you in different places. So like when I go back to a place that I used to live for a while, it's almost like I'm like connecting to a trailer that like, you know, is, or like a, you know, like a train car, it's like clicking on, it's like, oh yeah, this was here the whole time, but it's not there like when I leave or something. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but I, I started thinking like, why would we have conflict? And then I started thinking like, what would be the benefit? And on an individual level, we want connection and belonging. Like you say, we're attracted to, to status to a certain amount, but that's largely for security, I would say, because we want to save state for our effort and we want like future to be like easier, like easier access to better resources, easier access to, to better things, I suppose. But really at the base, we just want like love, connection, yummy food and good views or something like that. Maybe a little bit of adrenaline, a little bit of fun or something. Everything else is like add on, I, I would say. But then there's like conflict. And I was thinking maybe that's to help our help the genome get into the future because that's our one charge like i might you know we don't really know each other but there could be like a situation where i sacrifice myself for you or you sacrifice yourself for me and that's crazy when you think about it but like that's like deep 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 in our in our um programming to like get the genome into the future and um that transcends language race gender culture all that stuff and so it's really interesting that like so i think like th there might be some truth to that programming like get the genome into the future so i was thinking like in nature, what would be the what would be the positive thing for for this discomfort, the the being outside the group, or um, maybe the frustration? One is to maybe like evolve together, but then also, I don't think it's supposed to be easy. I think comfort kills, and we need a certain amount of adversity to to continue to evolve. And sometimes the uh, when you're when you're met with some 
some adversity from from someone, it could be one of two things. Like either they they have some uh, struggles, and also they're helping you in a way unconsciously get the genome into the future. So that was kind of how I thought of it, like us as both an individual and also part of a group organism. I know that was a lot as well. Does does any of that kind of resonate with you? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different directions that that my head jumps to there. Um, I have thoughts on all of it, but. You know, I think you mentioned the word paradox a lot, and I want to play with that idea a little bit. So first of all, this idea of paradox is 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 very Jungian in a lot of ways, and it's also very spiritual. So a lot of spiritual di- disciplines are designed to help you transcend dualism. Right. So when you're no longer are experiencing contradiction and instead you're experiencing paradox, know that you're on the right path, I guess, spiritually. But one of the first things, this recognition, and there's a there's a metaphysical component to it as well, which we don't have to talk about. But the idea of of collective humanity as one organism or or this idea of even just oneness, even with the material world etc. So inherently, so everyone experiences these two things. Everyone experiences a sense of self separate from other with a capital O, the external, right? Everyone has these two primary emotions, the sense of this is me experiencing this one thing here, here am I, I am, I am set, I am individual yet simultaneously we have this longing slash sense of differentiation from everything that is not I. And those two experiences are relative, right? You could not have the one, you could not have the sense of I without having the differentiation, the longing to be connected, the feeling separate from. So these things actually aren't in conflict with one another. They're the greater part of a whole of a paradox. And I look back at, you also mentioned conflict and, you know, I'm, I'm a therapist. So my head naturally goes to trauma in a lot of ways, trauma in nature, trauma that we experience, trauma as paradox, trauma as precursors to growth, transformation, et cetera. We also come from trauma. I mean, both literally in birth trauma and the universe was created through friction and rupture, which is trauma, the big bang, right? So in, in, in nature, right? Stress, trauma, when an ecosystem, when an ingredient that maintains homeostasis is removed from that ecosystem, that ecosystem is then thrown into disarray, into trauma, into stress, and what it does is that it uses that lack of equilibrium to then grow and find a new homeostasis. It's going to look different, but all of these things are super, super interconnected. And um, even again, we look, I mean, life on the surface looks like it's made up in dualism, right? Left hemisphere, right hemisphere, man, woman, I know there's a spectrum there, right? I mean, good, evil, night, day, yin, yang, etc. It's all masculine, feminine. It's all of this cosmic dance of dualism. And 
when in reality, so much of, 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 of growth and, and the spiritual process is being able to transcend that. And it's difficult to do that because of the birthing process and because of the toxic shame that is a result of the birthing process, which I can talk about a little bit if you're, if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the fetal experience is complete unity, complete harmony. The unconscious fetus experiences complete harmony with life, with their mother, with life, with oneness. And then obviously there's a birthing process, which is extremely traumatic for both mother and, and child. And now what is registered is this separation. So then there's this, it's called self object theory idea in psychology that basically everything in our minds and in, in, in the unconscious can be sort of trickled down, reduced to this idea of self and other with a capital O. So we are no longer having this complete union with life, with mother nature, with mom. And now there's this identification of self and other. And so the other is very is first embodied in space and time because we could talk about this with physics as well as our mother and so then the mother right that's yin that's mother that's the feminine that's mother nature there's this whole symbol this energetic because i do believe that life is sort of is a whole of these two aspects of masculine feminine this dualism but it's this whole picture so anyways the other then further divides with the introduction of the father, right? Then masculine energy, or perhaps our literal embodied father. Now, the fetus, the child is egocentric at the time, meaning that they believe they are the center of the universe, yet we are dependent on the other for survival, on our parents for survival. So because of that egocentricity and because our parents are fallible humans, they're busy and children are needy, none of those needs are completely fully met, right? It's not a complete, total harmonic experience. And so that is where toxic shame sort of comes in, this idea that we are fallible, that we are imperfect. Again, if you want to like even take it in a religious sense, right? This is the idea of original sin. If the, the fetal experience is the garden of Eden, complete paradise, oneness, harmony, boom. Now we're literally naked and solitary out of our mother's womb, right? Salt naked in the garden of Eden. And we have this original sin, this sense of shame. And so now life is a cosmic dance, in my opinion, of these two different energies, masculine, feminine, logos, eros, right? The Greeks had words for this, left hemisphere, masculine, right hemisphere. It feels like a, that they're in constant battle with one another. Because of our toxic shame, we identify that we are responsible for that battle. And healing is transcending that, healing that shame and recognizing that it's actually not a battle, it's a dance, it's a dance between the two that play this sort of melody of life. And this is what mythology is in many ways, is it tells the story of this cosmic melody, of this cosmic dance. And so clarity comes and the paradox becomes full 
when you realize how could these two energies be in conflict with one another when they come from the same source? Unconsciously, they both come from other with a capital O. So they're may, it's begotten, not made, right? They come from the same source. How could they be in conflict with one another? So that's where the transcending of the opposites comes. That's where then the paradox becomes clear. And again, this is a, a Jungian idea. He would identify the third. So if life feels like a contradiction, you have option one, option two. Within the balance of the two reveals the third option. And it's that third option that is the paradox. And that is the one that is indicative of our wholeness. So synthesizing the, the logos and the arrows, synthesizing the masculine and feminine, synthesizing the, the trauma and the salve, or how would you, how would you talk about that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes, 100% synthesizing logos and arrows logos being more so our mind in many ways, our rational, our logic, Again, for the depth psychologists, the body is way more feminine. So Eros synthesizing mind and body through spirit. Um, and then trauma and healing as well, right? Identifying that trauma is the catalyst for healing, is the catalyst for change and transformation. It is a part of nature. It is a data point. Obviously, there are folks that have experienced very serious trauma. I don't, don't mean to take this conversation lightly at all or be reductive in any sense, but they go together to paint this full picture. And as I said, we are literally born from trauma and the universe was born from trauma, right? And so in many ways, again, the paradox, we are not responsible for these traumas, but we are responsible for healing them to the best of our ability. And so, so much of these different aspects of life, these different pieces, they do land on paradox. And when you land on paradox, you land at the understanding that, you know what, it may be way better to live the question than to know the answer. That's how you hold paradox is by living paradox. It's an experiential thing. It's ineffable. We just did our best to explain it. But the reality of experiencing it is ineffable. So you hold the ineffable question as opposed to seeking the answer. I love that. It's like the the journey is the the destination, basically. You're just experiencing it. You know, you're never done. And okay, I'm gonna tell you something else about Japan that really uh, opened my 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 mind. Um, there's different ways that people could have arrived at this, but for me. It was a uh, Scottish gentleman client coming to, he wanted to go to the goldfish market, goldfish auction. I never heard of a goldfish auction. I thought goldfish were the least expensive fish you could buy at the pet shop. And turns out it's like this pretty like elaborate, uh, like art or, or uh, uh, culture. And it's about an hour train ride outside of Nagoya, which is like middle of Japan. And there's like a bunch of like greenhouses, if you will, in the middle of a, a field. And they have like different fish in, in different pools. And they all look very different, but they're all essentially goldfish. And you, you take like two goldfish and you mate them and there's like a probability of outcomes. And they basically run the experiment like many, many times and wind up with like some really intricate breeds of goldfish that uh, transcend a human lifespan. So basically you need 
uh, cooperation across generations. You need your daughters and your sons to follow the family tradition. Like here's, you know, I started this. This is 75 years of my data. Please continue it for the next 75 years and tell your grandkids, et cetera. And you wind up with some really unique uh, blends of gold, uh, types of goldfish. And this uh, Scottish gentleman was super excited. And he's like, can you tell me how you did this? And they're like, no, <laughs> like for a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of like secret, but two, like, you know, you wouldn't be able to do it in your lifetime. And that's kind of an interesting cultural difference. I think as we became more atomized and our, uh, our, our societies became a little bit disintegrated where we, we left our hometowns and we lived in apartment buildings or you know, separated from a multi-generational household, some of those, the ways that we would do that have changed for better or worse. And I just thought that was a really interesting, unexpected uh, throwback to, to an older way of, of doing things. And you, when you mentioned about the life force and, and uh, who we are, that kind of goes back to what I meant about the group organism. So I thought about it in the present tense. However, if you look at it in a temporal sense, none of my thoughts are my own. I've, I've, I've borrowed them from books I've read. I borrowed, I've, I'm listening to you. You're sparking some unconscious seedlings in my mind where I'm like, oh, you know, and, you know, but that's not really my thought. And it's interesting how much of our identity seems to uh, be placed in, in what we say and what we think when really we're just playing, we're like an instrument and like a symphony, just playing our part into the cosmos. Um, that got a little meta, but what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I mean, what a what a gorgeous experience and story there with the with the goldfish. I just love that in actuality and also just like the symbol of it. The metaphor of that is is super cool. And um yeah, this this the reality that so much of our thinking and our experiencing it is very acculturated, right? I mean, you you look at Western literature and and basically all of it can be traced back to the Bible and like Plato, you know, <laughs> like in philosophy as well, you know, so much of consciousness and thought and science and art and everything, it all builds on itself. Right. And that is just completely 10 X with this. Now this exposure to, to the internet and every piece of information that's ever, you know, existed in so many ways. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really compelling to think about, you know, and, uh, it, it makes me think about, I might not want to go too much in this direction, but you know, a part of my master's degree was, was dream analysis, which I know is kind of not really touted as, you know, a super evidence-based practice in modern therapy. But, um, I've had some, some extremely archetypal dreams that some symbols or some, some aspects of the storytelling within it or whatever that like very clearly did not come from me. Right. Like, no, like, no part of that was ever anything I'd ever thought of or experienced or whatever. And so it brings to mind the power of, of the unconscious in, in so many ways. And I know Jung was big on this and, you know, he reportedly, and it's in his autobiography and he wrote about it, you know, he had a dream about uh, World War One, two years, about 18 months before it happened. And so, you know, yeah, which is a trip, you know, this idea though, that like, we, as you said, we are all a part of this, this shared organism and, and in many ways in the physical, but also in our consciousness as well, in the collective consciousness, cultural consciousness. Do you believe in like past lives or multiple lives? Um, I don't really know where I stand on that, to be honest. Um, yeah, I haven't really sorted that out for myself quite so much. I mean, there is sort of like you know, 
there is a reality that there are people who are on the planet that are innately have a higher development of consciousness than others. And is that education, opportunity? Is it genetics? Is it the systematic factors? You know, there's so many different ways to look at it. Or is it an aspect of, of like reincarnation in that they're part of the soul's journey is to come into the physical form to grow, to actualize. It's almost gamified in some ways to hit that next level. And so again, you hear the idea of old souls, et cetera. And so I, I absolutely don't, I don't rule that out. And I think that, you know, you hear enough stories from people and in, in, in near, you know, near death experiences and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm open to all of it, but on that one specifically, I don't have too much of a, a personal opinion. What, what about yourself? Fair enough. I'm very similar to you. I think I, I don't obviously know enough to definitively say yes or no, but I am open. I'm becoming more open uh, and less certain about just about everything. Like I, I tell folks, I was never smarter than when I was 20 years old. Like each year after that, I've gotten dumber and dumber, I feel, because I'm just less and less certain about, about everything. And, uh, you know, the benefit is I see things from maybe more, um, more, perspectives or have more experiences. But I also wonder, going back to like quantum theory or quantum mechanics rather, uh, like what if we make our reality? Because like when you look at religion and and usually you get pretty big numbers in religion, like hundreds of millions or if even billions of people following the same uh, story, essentially, uh, depending on where it started. And, and maybe it's building off of other stories and in a sense, maybe it becomes real. And, and maybe there is a connection or something that people outside of that particular um, view uh, don't, don't see or don't understand. But it, maybe it's made manifest also in a very like real sense. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of our opportunity to, to basically make and create our, our lives. And so it's, it's, you think of like positive framing or um, kind of uh, like taking an event and, and, uh, changing it, uh, changing your, your perception of it in a way. And um, so how, how does that like resonate with you? Yeah. Um, I, I do agree with that to, to an extent. I mean, again, there's a bunch of different frameworks to sort of look at it, but um, you know, it brings to mind this and it may not fully answer your question, but it, it brings to mind this sort of thought experiment that you hear in philosophy classes, philosophy schools, like whatever. And, and basically it, it exposes the reality of ontology, right? As in the study of phenomena. So for example, if you and I were in a room with three other people and there was a big elephant in the middle and we were all blindfolded and we were directed to go walk yeah. up and feel and describe the elephant, right? I may be touching- yeah, it's trunk, et cetera. Somebody else has its hind leg, whatever. Is there an ultimate right. reality that there is an elephant in the room or is the reality found in the ontology, in the study of the phenomena yeah. of, of experience, right? And, and, and I think that there's yeah. a paradox at play as well. And obviously, I mean, yeah. it brings to mind, I think, like uh, Plato's cave fallacy, whatever. There's that thing too, as well. But, you know, I think in so many ways, I'm, I am somebody who was interested in the study of phenomena. And so when I think of 
religion, when I think of all these different aspects, I mean, I'm, I, I would consider myself more of like an esoteric Christian. Um, but I think the greatest evidence for an ultimate reality is found in the experience of the folks who have had a phenomenal, phenomenological, I don't know how to pronounce that word, experience of the ultimate reality. It's found in the ontology of it, right? And so I think that, that the, the evidence of experience can't be ignored. Yes, it's, it's obviously filtered in, in our memories and we have all these biases and stuff like that, but the experience supersedes the, the rational logic of it. Again, it's the same way when I'm doing therapy with someone or whatever, like I'm trying to facilitate experience because that's what changes people. It's not insight. It's not me saying some interesting thing about their relationship or whatever. It's them having an experience in a specific held moment between two people that serves as a real catalyst for change. And experience is, is evidence, right? It's fact. You can't ignore the experience. Speaking of seedlings, you just said something that blew my mind. It brought, it brought this uh, concept, um, remembering like or misremembering or, or uh, kind of having under uh, unconscious biases that may interfere with the quote unquote accurate uh, memory of an event uh, is commonplace. And my initial reaction is, oh, that we must, you know, purify that. We must remove the, the filter, the bias. But now I'm wondering like, what if the bias is the part of the of the solution? Like, what if, you know, because we're not really in control, like what, you know, it's like, we want, no, 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 like get the raw data. But what if like the bias is part of the thing that gets us to the ultimate uh, next step that we don't realize? What do you think about that? I mean, I, I agree with that. I wouldn't know how to sort of like take with that and like run that into actuality, you know, but it brings to mind, so I am, I'm, I'm currently reading the Bible and I know I apologize that I keep taking things in more of like a spiritual or esoteric sense, but that's, the, that's who you're talking to. So, you know, um, and it brings to mind, never apologize for who you are. <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. So there's a, there's a passage in the new Testament where Jesus is brought into the woods to be tempted by the devil. And they make it very, very clear. What is the thing that brings Jesus into the woods to be tempted by the devil? It is not the devil. It is the Holy Spirit, right? In this, So kind of what you're talking about, that bias there, the same thing with this idea of like sin as well, right? So, and regardless of whether we're looking at this symbolically, literally, metaphorically, whatever, if God made Adam as a man, who was perfect, who could not be tempted by sin, then the catalyst for the story wouldn't, wouldn't take place. Right. But he made the composition of Adam as a man who it, that is inclusive of the temptation of the sin of the distractory quality. Right. And, and there's an, there's a phrase in it for it in Hebrew. I can't remember it right now, but it's basically, and it brings to mind the trickster archetype in many ways, which I could talk about as well. But um, this sort of like sneaky grin, little wink of life, that really is the paradox. The paradox is the wink, the little cheekiness, that that is divine as well. 
that that is ordained, that that is the intelligence in action, we just set and fall into our own traps. <laughs> but that's a part of the joke. That's a part of it. Because you wouldn't, it wouldn't be real if you're not tested. Um, but you mentioned a little while ago about shame and trauma and that being necessary. And, and I, you know, maybe I'm misremembering here, but the way I took it was that was very necessary to get us to where we need to go. And I've felt that in, in my life more recently, you would, it's like a superpower. Like it's, it supercharges your, it's like, it's like gasoline on a fire or something. You could never like run as fast or, or work out as hard or, or try as hard or help as hard or, you know, do anything to the degree. It's almost like listening to music when you're working out. It's just like, it's an, ex, it's an extra 10% boost. And you just can't mimic that in like a neutral state and just like, oh, I don't want to make any mistakes, but I want to succeed and just be perfect. It's like, sorry, it doesn't like perfection, like going back to what you said, it, it's, it's in the whole thing happening. Um, and we don't, we don't get to see it. Maybe we get to experience these, these, you know, moments like, you know, for example, I know this is silly, but when you see like a beautiful sunset after like a, a good back-to-back -back few days of like rainy weather or something, it's like, it's beautiful to look at. And, uh, whereas if you have them like every day, it just, it loses its, its magic. When you take that out to, for an ice cream or a sushi or, a you know, an embrace or uh, whatever, you know, you need the kind of opposite in order to like truly appreciate it or the lack in order to appreciate the gain. So anyway, I just kind of rambled a little bit there, but I like the whole, like what you said, the, the, the full package and the, the, the wink there. I, I've seen that as well. And I started to, when you mentioned good and evil, again, I, I don't know, obviously, but I used to look at things like that. Like if only we got rid of this thing, um, or this type of behavior. And uh, like I mentioned with the shadow, like, oh, this person really annoys me. And then like a year or two later, realizing like, whoa, that person is essentially me or like elements of, of what annoys me is, is like elements of myself. Um, and I start to wonder if it's not all like necessary. Like if you just took that out, you just, it's almost like, I don't know what a good analogy is actually, but it's like, you need, you, you, you need all of it. Like none of us, and it is a little bit arrogant to suggest that like, you know, I've only been here for a little bit, but, but you know, you guys stop what you're doing. Like you're doing it all wrong. Like I know what's best with all of my knowledge. Uh, so yeah, I think, um, I mean, definitely voice, like, like we talked, like don't get into the people pleasing or the, the suppression, but just throw it out there, like empty your pockets on the table. Let's see what we're working with and just, you know, run the experiments and maybe we get to multiple lifetimes. Maybe we get to multiple planets. Maybe we find out that there's multiple di uh, dimensions. I mean, there, there are, but I mean, like more than we know and uh, et cetera. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't think a hundred years is long enough. So I, I like to believe that there's multiple lifetimes, but even if there isn't in the sense that like we are present in them, I think we are present in, in ways that we don't quite understand as well. Like I mentioned with thoughts and with little bits of our genome and with little things that we do that kind of go unsaid. There's this, uh, the ending of the uh, TV series, The Expanse. Are you familiar with that show? It's a sci-fi, I, I, I'm kind of a sucker for sci-fi. Uh, and that, that's one that I, I really like. Um, it's got elements of like space opera about it as well, but good acting, good story writing, I think. But anyway, towards the end, uh, well, actually the very end, I think, one of the characters, I don't think this is giving anything away. Um, she says, uh, you never know like what one word to someone will do. And it could just have this, this chain reaction where it completely changes the course, not only of their life, but of everyone that they touch. And 
it just, it, I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking about the profound impact that each one of us can have. And you kind of gain that, again, going back to the paradox of individuality and collective existence, you gain that by letting go. And you, you basically just give it up and become a, a vessel or a vector for whatever thoughts and energy you benefit from or coming into you, they flow through you. And you actually wind up becoming, I think, more impactful and more powerful rather than trying to control um, what you don't understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Just the identification of your own limited thinking. You know, everything that's beyond the limitations of your own thinking is a power greater than you. And how can we rely on that more and more? Not only is it more conducive to happiness, but I think the planet would be better off if people live that way. And also this, this idea is held in, in so many great stories and myths as well. And I mean, you know, the hero's journey and it's just really, it's just super parallel. With your, like what you're doing right now, you mentioned that you're an entrepreneur. Is that with uh, your therapy practice or with something else that you're working on? So it's marketed as coaching. Um, so I, I do work as a therapist as well, but then I'm, I'm, there are certain parameters I'm adhering to state boards. There's parameters around self-disclosure, you know, ethics, power dynamics, which all that stuff is super important, which I think really sets me apart as a coach as well, because I have all that of it, all that experience, but I have so many other interests, you know, I'm an athlete. I know a lot about the body. You know, I know a decent amount about business. I'm learning more, you know, like, so when I work with somebody as a coach, I can be more directive and giving them sort of direct guidance or telling them what to do for lack of a better term, because I can't do that as a therapist. It's more about curiosity, exploration. And so, and as a coach as well, I can share more about my personal story. I can, we can talk about fitness. We can talk about nutrition. We can get into to more stuff. I have a, um, I'm not constricted to the scope of competence in, in just being a therapist. So, yeah. So my main focus right now as an entrepreneur is, is really, really building a brand, you know, building an audience. Um, I'm super focused on YouTube X, Instagram threads right now. I'm going to be, you know, getting into LinkedIn a little bit, but you know, with automation coming down the pipeline, you know, a personal brand is something that really can't be, can't be automated in so many ways. And, you know, the ingenuity of real good creative writing holds a lot of value as well. So, um, yeah. So meeting folks on there, you know, I have a coaching practice. I have a program that I run guys through. I got some clients that I'm running through it right now. And then also just, you know, selling some products, taking a lot of, you know, the experience of you know, the last 10 years of my life of healing from some heavy trauma that I held on to, you know, the therapy shortcuts, the stuff that really, really worked for me, putting those in a product in a package for people to just, you know, bring greater awareness, education, save people money and um, just trying to bring value, trying to be of service. You know, I felt like I've already, I've transformed my life and continued to in so many ways. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really time for me to continue to, to help other people do the same. Last question for me, who's one of your favorite actors and why? Tom Hardy, Tom Hardy, you know, he walks a line in his work that, that I walk, that I try to walk and that he really has this like masculine vulnerability. Like there's not, which I think speaks to the male psyche in many ways. Like there's not a sensitivity to his work in a way that maybe feels, um, I don't know, 
self-indulgent, I guess. And he's very, there's like a, there's a, there's a rugged sort of masculine component to the way that he shares himself that really holds this paradox that walks this line of like real humanistic window and window into him and his soul and his spirit, but really also holds some of that like masculine fire as well. So, you know, I, I would say Tom Hardy's probably top of the list. Do you have a favorite role of his? I'm trying to think if I have a favorite role of his. Um, there's a movie that stands out to me. It's called the drop is that like his work in that really embodies that. And then warrior as well. There's a scene that takes place with him and Nick Nolte who, who plays his father that holds that too. And like the way Tom just holds. And then the scene in the casino as well, the way he holds his brokenness in that is just, it's sublime. Yeah. That, that movie is uh, criminally underrated. Uh, but for those, I think that, that see it, it's, it's a very powerful movie. Um, yeah. I like that as well. Well, Brian, is there anything that you want to like last words you want to leave us with or anything you want to highlight? No, man. I mean, what a treat. What a joy. I learned a lot from you. Um, I was just so pleased that we got to connect and have this conversation. It was, you know, held some depth and weight. I learned a lot. And um, I hope, you know, for the folks that are listening, I hope that they were able to to gain something from our shared space as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything you brought to the conversation. And, you know, I look forward to seeing that book when it comes out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, man.